treating or curing the mind is more about treating the entire self, acknowledging that healing is extremely multifaceted and there's no one-size-fits-all cure. Welcome to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined. Today's topic is both provocative and cautiously aspirational. In the last decade, there has been a shift in our understanding of the possible causes of mental illnesses like schizophrenia, thanks largely to neuroscience and our growth in understanding the human brain. It's leading us to ask if the notion of a cure for mental illness will one day be possible. Now, it's very important to note, though, that the concept of the word cure is incredibly nuanced and obviously means different things to different people. That's right, Phaedra. The definition of a cure for mental illness is inherently personal, as it can signify full recovery, symptom management, or the ability to lead a fulfilling life despite ongoing challenges. Each person's interpretation is shaped by their unique experiences, perspectives, and goals in navigating their mental health journey. And we're not saying or implying complete eradication, especially in conditions like schizophrenia. And to help us navigate this very complex terrain and explore the intersection of neuroscience, cutting-edge research, as well as the evolving understanding of the human brain, we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Daniel Weinberger. He is the director and CEO of the Lieber Institute for Brain Development and professor of psychiatry, neurology, neuroscience, and genetic medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. To say he's both a pioneer and a trailblazer in the field of neuroscience is certainly an understatement. His insights have shaped our understanding of the brain and its role in mental illnesses, particularly with schizophrenia. We're excited to have Dr. Weinberger with us to talk about the evolving landscape of neuroscience and mental illness. Dr. Weinberger, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really delighted and thrilled to be here with you. I've been a fan of the work you've done, and I'm very excited to tell you about how this landscape of research and understanding of serious mental illness is moving. We're so excited to have you here, so let's jump right in. The concept of a cure, obviously incredibly complex. Can you please just share your thoughts as to why this concept is so complex? Well, it's definitely complex. It's the holy grail of research is to cure serious illness. We've talked about cures for disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism, depression for generations. This is not a new aspiration. And there have been many claims over the many years of insights that might lead to cures. So with that in mind, we have to be a little circumspect about what the realities are. Psychiatric illnesses, mental illnesses are very, very complicated. These uniquely human disorders of perception, behavior, cognition, comportment, very complicated because the human brain is very complicated. So we have to be cautious. We don't know where we are right now on this path to cures. We don't know if we're close or if we're far, but we know some very important insights about where we are on this path towards cure. And that is that we have learned more about the causes and nature of serious mental illness. And I'm referring to schizophrenia, but it's also true of autism, depression, bipolar disorder. We've learned more about the basic nature of these disorders in the last 10 years than in all of past history. 
And that is a huge change in the landscape of what we know and how we approach trying to discover something that could be curative. So this is a time for enormous optimism. That's great to hear, Dr. Weinberger. So in saying that, what does cure mean to you? Cure means very different things to different people. And cure can be relief of very disabling symptoms. Cure can be the capacity to return to one's life as it was before an episode of serious mental illness happened. Or it can be that there would never be a recurrence. So there are different ways we might imagine cure. Okay, Dr. Weinberger, I'm just going to cut you off there. When you say that there's different ways that we might imagine cure, what do you mean by that? My sense is every treatment that we use in psychiatry today have varial degrees of success in treating the symptoms of serious psychiatric illness. None of these therapies were discovered based on a fundamental understanding of the causes of these illnesses. They were all discovered by luck, by happenstance, by some misguided idea of what might work. And they do work to a certain degree in many people. What has changed so profoundly in the last 10 years is we now have insights that are based largely on these large-scale genetic studies, as well as our new understanding of how brains get started from very early in life on the road to these conditions. We have insights about this that we've never had before. And these are insights to causes. These are insights to mechanisms. When I was a medical student, we talked about cancer in terms of what organ the cancer was in and what it looked like under the microscope. That's how we diagnosed a cancer. And most of these cancers were treated with one size fits all chemotherapy or radiation. That's not the way cancer is treated anymore. Cancer is now based on what the genetic molecular characteristics of the tumor cells are. And those characteristics can lead to very specific treatments that are much more effective than they were prior generation. This is beginning to emerge on the horizon of psychiatric research, where we're beginning to discover basic mechanisms of the causes. This is the way you discover cures. This is the roadmap to discovering cures. It's not to suggest that it's easy to do, to go from a discovery of a mechanism to how to reverse the impact of that mechanism, but it's undoubtedly a much better strategy for finding definitive treatments than chance. So are you talking about prevention when it comes to serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia? In all of human public health, it's generally easier to prevent something than it is to cure it. So we know, for example, smoking causes lung cancer. It's a lot easier to stop people from smoking and prevent lung cancer than it is to treat it once it happens. And this is going to be true in mental illness too. It's going to be true in schizophrenia. It's going to be true in bipolar disorder, depression. If we can understand these mechanisms and how the ball gets rolling downhill, we may be able to stop it from gathering too much momentum and prevent the emergence of these disorders long before they're likely to manifest themselves. So prevention really is the holy grail in public health, even more than cures. I just had one question on the first part of what you said that I wanted to touch on. You said that there have been a lot of breakthroughs. What would you personally consider to be the key breakthroughs that have occurred? 
The 21st century has been called the century of molecular genetic medicine. We've known for 100 years, most illnesses run in families to some degree or another, and that leads to the conclusion that genetics plays some role in human illnesses. What's unique about genes is that genes, by definition, are the egg. They can't be the chicken. One of the problems in medicine is knowing what leads to what. And genes are the toolbox that every cell in your body uses for its purpose, for its goals, for what it does. They rely on this genome, which is the complement of all the DNA that you inherit from your two parents. Everybody gets their DNA honestly. Nobody steals it. Half comes from your mother, half comes from your father. And that's what you have for your whole life. That is the toolbox that every cell uses to live, to do its job, to do what it has to do. And so genes contribute to the liability for illness because they're about how the cells work. And if you inherit variations in your genome that cause little glitches in how your cells work, those cells are vulnerable to manifest illness. They are mechanisms of illness. So having given this little background on why genes matter to us, it's been huge studies now in the last decade of very large populations of people with a variety of psychiatric illnesses. Studies literally with tens of thousands of people who have one of these conditions and compare them to individuals that don't have the conditions. And when you do these kinds of studies, you look across the human genome for where there are differences between people in one letter of the DNA alphabet or another. So these discoveries in these huge studies of tens of thousands of people, you look at all the variations across the genome in the people that have a particular disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. You compare all those variations in that group's genomes to all the variations in the genomes of people that don't have those disorders. And when you find differences, those differences have something to do with why the people were in the schizophrenia group or the bipolar group. That is now a new insight into how they got where they got. So these are profound insights. You've touched on, and it was so fascinating to hear the breakthroughs and everything that's happened over the last decade. The million-dollar question, what does this mean, Dr. Weinberger, for future treatments? I think we've made enormous discoveries that give us hard science information about the causes of these illnesses. The challenge now is to use that information to change people's lives and to make their lives much more successful. That's the challenge. That's not an easy challenge because the brain is very complicated and there's no one gene that all by itself is the holy grail in solving this problem. But these represent little clues to opening up this complicated biology. So again, genes are the blueprint for making principally proteins in cells. Genes tell a cell how to assemble a series of amino acids that make a protein. And the protein is the machinery of a cell. These proteins are the targets of treatments. The drugs that we use to treat people with many, many different conditions generally target proteins and they make the proteins act differently. 
they either inhibit an enzyme or they activate some sodium or calcium aspect of how a cell works. So these are what we call druggable targets. There's a lot of interest now in pursuing these insights from genetic studies as to whether or not many of the genes that look to be important in forming the basis for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and I will say schizophrenia a lot, but really these principles apply to all the behavior disorders because these are about how the brain works. When you look at the brain of somebody who has schizophrenia under the microscope, you don't see a brain that looks any different from a brain that has no psychiatric condition at all. What's different is how the cells talk to each other. The other thing that happens in all of this is that our genomes are very personal to us. None of us have exactly the same genome. This is the whole principle of what we call personalized medicine. It's getting some traction in certain areas of medicine, but so far it's completely missing in psychiatric treatment. But hopefully, because one of the principal determinants of personalized medicine is our genomes, there may be some individualized treatments that'll be more effective in one person than another person. That's very aspirational, I think, is something we can anticipate in the future. That's so exciting because I just recently read a little bit about the personalized medication based on genomes. And I think it would be especially important with psychiatric medications where oftentimes it's like you'll start to see relief or benefits from the medication in up to six weeks or so. So six weeks later, if you're not seeing those benefits, then you're kind of back to square one. So if we're able to reduce some of that, that would be amazing. There's no question that the current armamentarium of treatments is very trial and error. It's very hit or miss. And again, none of these treatments are based on the mechanisms of illness. We have to be able to do better by having insights into the actual causative mechanism. It has to be the right way to go. It's an ongoing thing that people live with for their entire lives, but that's the fundamental important part of having ongoing and accessible treatment for people. They need to receive that for their entire lives, and I think it's really important. So I don't believe in curing mental illness, but I do believe in overcoming the hardships that come with it through proper coping mechanisms and having a good support system. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast about mental illness brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and our BC partner organizations. I'm Phaedra Aldridge. And I'm Melissa McKenna. And today we're speaking with Dr. Daniel Weinberger about the latest insights and advancements in the field of neuroscience and the role it plays in knowing more about mental illnesses like schizophrenia. Dr. Weinberger, we understand that you have some pretty exciting new research coming out that will be published soon. Can you reveal and tell us a little bit about this research? I always refer to schizophrenia as the cancer of mental illness, because in many ways, it's the most disabling disorder. It tends to be disabling for most of a person's adult lifetime. It's very disruptive. The public health costs are enormous. The impact on a family can be devastating. Treatments that we have today are effective, and most patients are much better off being treated with the available treatments than not. But it's also very clear that treatments have untoward effects that are not trivial. And it's also clear that many people still could be treated a lot more effectively. So one of the things that 
has emerged. It's really been going on for several decades, but the data now have become incontrovertible is that people who manifest schizophrenia, which is first diagnosed in late teens, early 20s, that's the typical time that somebody gets the diagnosis of schizophrenia. But what's become apparent is that in large population studies, people who will ultimately receive this diagnosis, they don't quite reach the normal developmental milestones of the general population that they live in from very early in childhood. So large-scale studies in countries like England, Scandinavia, have shown that people who later will manifest schizophrenia 20 years later may sit up as a group two weeks later than people that don't manifest schizophrenia. So instead of sitting up at 42 weeks, they sit up at 44 weeks. That's the average. So on average, they're delayed a little bit. Speech is delayed a little bit. Their school performance is a little bit less than the performance of their siblings. And this has led many people to wonder, is there something happening earlier in life that doesn't look like schizophrenia earlier in life, but is a telltale sign that somehow the programs of development are a little bit out of sync? And that was large population-based studies. We've also known that the brain doesn't show any evidence that it's degenerating in schizophrenia, like you see in Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, even though there's profound changes in cognition and the ability to control one's thinking. And this also led to the possibility that maybe things happen much earlier in life than when this diagnosis first happens. So this has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what's changed? What's changed is, and actually where I work at the Lieber Institute for Brain Development, we have been studying how human brains get started in life. Looking at prenatal brains, we get donations of brains from several centers around the country. The donations come from families that donate brains for biomedical research. These are all consented. The families undergo a detailed conversation about what it means to donate the brain of a loved one for medical research. So we receive many donations of brains from family members. And we also have brains from individuals prenatally. And now that we have this catalog of genes that have been associated with increased risk for schizophrenia from these big genetic studies, we can say, well, when do these genes appear in the human brain? When do we see evidence that they get turned on as if the brain wants them to be there? And we started reporting a series of studies now almost 10 years ago, but in 2015, that many of these genes associated with schizophrenia are extremely abundant in prenatal life, that the brain seems to really want them to be there. Could you tell us a little bit about what that led to? This led to the idea that, well, maybe they matter to how the brain is put together from the beginning in life, suggesting that, in fact, this path that ultimately leads to the emergence of this disorder in early adulthood begins much, much earlier than the illness is manifest. So that began a whole interest in what might be happening very early in life. And there's been many, many studies now that have followed up on this, showing that these genes that are related to schizophrenia as it's diagnosed in adulthood are very important in early, even 
prenatal life. They're very important in how brains get started. And so this has changed the whole thinking about what psychiatric illnesses may be. And it's led to this, I think, fairly widespread conviction now that these are what we call developmental disorders. Even though they're first diagnosed in early adulthood, the path that leads to them is slightly off what the beaten path might be. I like this metaphor of bowling. If you want to bowl a strike, the goal is to roll that ball at the right angle across the second arrow from the right and that those arrows that are a few feet from the fault line. And if it crosses that arrow at the right angle, by the time it gets to the pins, it's a strike. It's right in the strike zone. What if it's off by a centimeter? What if it's just off by one centimeter, which might be the genetic predisposition early in development? Because you could imagine that when the ball leaves your hand and starts down that alley, that's the developmental program that got that ball going. If it's a centimeter off the arrow, it's not a centimeter off when it gets down to the pins. It's four or five centimeters off because it's a trajectory that gets exaggerated over time. And the genetics builds in biases for how cells are likely to get through the vagaries of environmental exposures and experience. But they set the tone for how this is going to go. So the evidence now is very clear that what's happening early in life, probably even before birth, is an important factor in the probability that something like schizophrenia is likely to happen. So we know that there has been some recent research that connects prenatal life to the risk of developing conditions such as schizophrenia and bipolar. We would love to hear your thoughts on this. So one of the other things that we've been very interested in at the Lieber Institute for Brain Development is trying to understand what the environment is like for a developing fetus in prenatal life. The environment, which is the environment within the mother, is very largely determined by an organ that's probably the most neglected organ in human research. It's called the placenta. The placenta is the critical organ that leads to the development of the newborn infant. It is the only source of nutrients, of blood, of oxygen that the fetus gets. The placenta is principally a fetal organ. This is not from the mother. It's not the mother's fault if there's a problem with the placenta. Placenta, it's built off the fetal genome. And there's been data for 100 years that complicated pregnancies where there's some threat to the health of the fetus, which happened in about 10 to 15% of pregnancies, there's some complication that could be a risk factor, increase the probability of many developmental disorders. So a complicated pregnancy that might be a risk to the fetus increases the chances of schizophrenia happening to that child in their lifetime, about twice the likelihood if they don't have a complicated pregnancy, which is still not a big probability if you imagine that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 1% of all births may end up having in their lifetime something schizophrenia-like. Having a complicated pregnancy means it goes from 1% to 2%. So it's still a very low probability. 
but it is a demonstrable, identifiable risk factor that changes what it means to have risk. Same thing is true for autism. Same thing is true for dyslexia, Tourette syndrome, attention deficit hyperactivity, ADHD. All of these developmental disorders are more common if there's been a complicated pregnancy. Intellectual difficulties also more common. That doesn't mean that they're guaranteed. None of this stuff guarantees anything. It just changes what the risk is a little bit. So we thought, well, how is complicated pregnancies doing this? Why is complicated pregnancy something that might increase the probability that 20 years later, somebody would manifest schizophrenia? And we thought to ourselves, well, the obvious place to look is the placenta. Because if there's a complicated pregnancy, the placenta is bearing the brunt of it. And the effects that that has on the placenta translates into how well the placenta is nurturing the fetus. So we began to study genes being present. So if the fetal genome has variations in that genome that are associated with increased risk for schizophrenia, we asked, well, what about the placenta? Does the placenta show any evidence that these genes related to schizophrenia play some role in the placenta? And we've reported this now in several publications in scientific journals. The placenta plays a surprising role in risk for several developmental disorders, schizophrenia very much in particularly, bipolar to a lesser degree. But in schizophrenia, there seems to be a collection of genes that increase the likelihood of schizophrenia. And we refer to these as causative factors, causative factors that are unique to the placenta. And they're not about any other organ in the fetus other than the placenta. This is very interesting because if we can make these placentas work a little bit better, would that prevent schizophrenia from happening in those people? This is a question for future research. This is fascinating, Dr. Weinberger, that research is now showing the role the placenta could possibly play in preventing serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia. Yeah. We showed in another paper that we published where we had the opportunity in collaboration with a group at University of North Carolina to study infants in the first two years of life. And we showed in that study that what's happening in the placenta predicts cognitive development in the first year of life. That the first year of life, that infant is still bearing the telltale signs of how well that placenta was working. After a year of life, many of those aspects of development that were affected by the placenta get compensated for by many other things Mm -hmm. because there are many other genes that determine brain development. But for that first year, the placenta plays a role. So we're playing games with this now. We have scientists here at the Lieber Institute for Brain Development that are building little placenta models out of stem cells and exposing them to different stresses. And we're picking ones that are enriched for schizophrenia genes and seeing if there's a way we can make them perhaps change their behavior, maybe as an opportunity to reduce the likelihood. This is very aspirational because placenta medicine is really a backwater in most of scientific research. There's been very little research done. We don't like to add any medicine to a pregnancy. It's going to be very difficult to imagine how this might get done. But again, This is what research is about. You make a discovery, you have an insight into something you hadn't imagined before, and the role of 
scientific researchers to ask questions and to explore where those questions might lead. That's right. And that's where, thank goodness, as you said, research. And we've had so much success over the last 10 years. It's going to be fascinating to see what the next 10 plus years bring. It is. So how does this field plan to bridge the gap between identifying genetic markers and comprehending their impact on brain development? I'm sure with, especially with schizophrenia, where we aren't seeing diagnoses until late adolescence, early adulthood, that's a long time to wait to see definitively. And there's a lot of environmental factors that happen in between. Yeah. So that's the challenging question, really. I keep falling back on a default answer, which is not a great one. I have to confess. It would be terrific if we could say we now understand 10 reasons at a very basic biological level that this person is likely to manifest schizophrenia in their lifetime. Why can't we just take that information, come up with a treatment or prevention strategy and make it happen? It's very difficult to do this, but I don't want to make it sound too insurmountable a problem. I just see the wine in the half full glass. I don't look at the part that's not full, even though I know it's there. And I know that we have a lot of mountains to climb here. To go from where we were literally 20 years ago, where we had no fundamental understanding of how anybody would manifest any of these illnesses, to having hard scientific insights into how a brain gets there, just this is a huge change in the landscape of the opportunities to find new treatments. Which is excellent. So, Dr. Weinberger, looking ahead, what do you think is going to happen in the next 10 years? I would say that three things are going to happen. One is we're going to have a better understanding of what this diagnosis means at the biological level of your brain and how it works. Two, we're going to have a new group of drugs, treatments, that will emerge based on fundamental understandings of causes and not symptoms. And three, we're going to be on a search to prevent the emergence of these disorders from much earlier in life. And that, I think, will be the real end to what are these devastating mental disorders for much too many people in our world. Mm -hmm. So I'm very optimistic that the dramatic discoveries of hard basic science in the last decade are going to mean to the future of individuals suffering with these disorders. And so great to hear that. We talk a lot through the BC Schizophrenia Society, through the podcast, just how important having that hope is. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of my favorite parts about the podcast is talking with people who are doing this research. And while there is a long way to go, it's nice to hear just how far we have come and things that are kind of in the horizon. So thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank you for doing this. It's extremely important that you do this. You have a wealth of information. So it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Look Again today. Thank you. I want to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts called Inside Schizophrenia. It's hosted by Rachel Starr Withers, who lives with schizophrenia. She and her co-host, Gabe Howard, cover topics like stigma, being a family member of someone living with a mental illness, homelessness, violence, treatments, and so much more. It includes firsthand experiences from individuals living with schizophrenia, family members, caregivers, and experts. 
Its aim is to foster a deeper understanding of schizophrenia, its impact, and the strategies for managing this serious illness. It is also medically reviewed and brought to you by Healthline Media. You can check out Inside Schizophrenia at psychcentral.com is or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And a huge thanks to you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. Together, we can better understand and change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia. To get our latest podcast episode, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking discussions in our next episode. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.